0: And welcome to the Penguin Podcast, the place where our finest authors reveal their creative processes by bringing into the studio a handful of objects that inspire them. I'm Katie Brand, and today I'm joined by a children's author who has sold over 40 million books, is a former children's laureate, and is best known for her Hetty Feather and Tracy Beaker series. And she's brought along her special objects, which include a lucky mascot, swimming goggles, and a railway timetable. It is, of course, Dame Jacqueline Wilson. Jacqueline, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Katie. Hello. So, before we move on to your objects to talk a bit more about those, for those who are listening that are fans of the Tracy Beaker series, your latest book uh, has literally just dropped, as they say uh, in the millennial terms. <laughs> um, we Are the Beaker Girls. So, can you tell us just briefly what it's all about?
1: It's about grown-up Tracy in her 30s. She and her 10-year-old daughter Jess have moved to the seaside. They've started up a little antique junk shop and it's all looking good for them. Jess is desperate for her mum to find a boyfriend. Also, there's a brand new person that comes into their lives and Tracy actually starts to wonder, could she foster a child herself? So all the compassion that
0: she has taken and imbibed
1: from her own experiences. She's always stayed very loyal and very fond of her foster mother Cam, who's still very much a presence in their lives. And Tracy herself, I did want to make this really plain in this book and the one that came before is that she's a brilliant mum Mm. she might have anger issues still she might be a bit flawed in some lovable ways just because you've had a rotten childhood yourself and haven't had a really really wonderful mum that you can actually choose to be a great mother and she certainly is is it
0: harder to write a story about a child that has a great mum than it is to write a book about a child that has perhaps slightly neglectful or challenging mum
1: yeah that's that's Very perceptive of you. I find (laughs) it it great when um, a a mum is lacking in some way and you're just focused in on the child and feel sorry for them. And there are other inspirational figures in the book that have also had tricky
0: childhoods. And what's really nice is... There's this sort of community growing up around Tracy and Jess. It feels reading it that that's as an adult, that that's something you've really wanted to say.
1: Very much so. And I've met a lot of care leavers who have tried to persuade me that it's very important for children in care to have role models to show that Anything is possible.
0: And this is something I think is common to a lot of the really great children's authors. And I've been doing some live shows with Michael Morpurgo, for example, and he always seems to me to be very keen to make sure that the real world is represented to children, that, it's, that you don't have to protect them from the realities of life. And that also seems to be something that's very prevalent in your work.
1: I, th- I think children nowadays no matter how much their parents try to protect them, are far more knowledgeable than their parents really want to admit. And I think if children just have half knowledge about situations, possibly they might even worry more about them. I think within reason, you should be really truthful.
0: Did you come up against some resistance to that in your early career when you said these are the things and the themes that I want to write about? People saying, no, no, we don't do that for children. We just sort of try. pretend that isn't happening?
1: I think I was very lucky with my timing. You know, I grew up reading children's books in the 50s and 60s, where they were, you know, children had big adventures, they might single handed round up a group of robbers, (laughs) march them (laughs) off to the police station. But certainly mums and dads didn't split up. There wasn't anything too disturbing or worrying. Um, But then times did seem to change a little bit. And when I started writing, I know, late 70s, I suppose, really you could write about anything. I mean, we're swinging back just a little way in that uh, we have a sensitivity editor now (laughs) to make sure Mm -hmm. that there's nothing too upsetting um, or that my terminology is absolutely up to speed Um, which I hope to goodness it is but you you just never know and you know I think everyone
0: has blind spots yes and the the world is
1: moving on so quickly now Mm. that what five years ago would be perfectly acceptable now you have to be extremely careful
0: as a writer as an experienced writer by the time you created Tracy Beaker did you have a moment with her where you thought I've got a good one here
1: I was extremely surprised. I was very grateful because some lovely person at the BBC then liked the story of Trace Beaker and wanted to make it into a television series. I think she had to hang on to it for about five years Mm. before somebody saw that it did have potential. I mean, it, it's so random, really. And, the, and then nobody really thought it would be a big hit. Um, people did say she's not aspirational enough. For me, that was her point. <laughs> I think it's work to treat. I'm thrilled to bits that CBBC are going to do a television series of my mum, Tracy Beaker, and We Are The Beaker Girls. Mm-hmm. And it's my favourite script writer, Emma Reeves, who's doing it. And so, fingers crossed, it it should be fine. Well, let's move on to
0: your first object, which I believe has often been in your pocket when you visited children,
1: perhaps a Sylvanian rabbit? That's right. This is this little rabbit rabbit who I call Radish, Mm -hmm. Um, she was a character in an early book called The Suitcase Kid about a child whose parents are split up and she spends one week with mum and her new family and one week with her dad. And I thought if a child is shuttling backwards and forwards, they can't take all their possessions. Perhaps my character Andy would want something she could hold in her hand, she could keep in her pocket, she could take it to school and just feel the little rabbit's ears under the desk. When I first started doing school visits, I felt I had to do something other than just talk about myself and books. So I would produce this little rabbit and say that uh, she stands on my desk and keeps me company when I write. But then I would make her do some little tricks. I mean, the favourite one was a sort of elastic band that I cut, tied one end round her ankle, the other end to a pencil, and they were always there before me. She's going to bungee jump, (laughs) and they enjoyed that. And then afterwards, it rather touched me because many kids said can we have a little rabbit like that? And I said, well, yes, most toy shops, this was in the days of Toys R Us, they sold them. And they said, no, no, we don't want an ordinary one. We want a magic one like radish. And it's quite frightening that sometimes if children haven't played when they're little with, you know, teddies coming alive and and sharing a, a bowl of cornflakes with them, they don't know how to do it, which I do think is a great shame because, Mm -hmm. well, for me, I practically live in the world of my imagination.
0: And over your many, many years of visiting children in schools and other places, have you seen a change in behaviour in that respect? In
1: primary schools, children haven't really changed particularly and seem very relaxed and happy for the most part. Secondary schools, in Year 7, they're still okay. they're on the turn Mm -hmm. in year eight. And year nine, so though individually are lovely people, you know, you really have to work hard. And I sound so fuddy-duddy, but in some schools, not all, behaviour is really quite extraordinary in that, you know, if you've got to try and find your way to the staff room after being in the classroom you're crushed to death in the corridor by mm. rampaging young people bigger than myself mm. um, so it, it's a different hurly-burly world I mean, I'm sure it'd be
0: heartening for lots of listeners and for me that you in your long long experience of this are finding that primary school children are broadly the same as ever they were I
1: think they are and and they've I, I don't really like to use the word innocent because children aren't innocent at all, but there's a light in their eyes. There's an enthusiasm. They, they roar with laughter at something silly, mm. whereas all that constant screen use for teenagers sort of dulls the brain. Mm. But I hate to think that bright, interesting teenage girls, the first thing they do when they wake up is look at their phone to Mm. see if something they might have posted last night has got lots of likes. And I do think there's more in life.
0: But... uh, The accessibility of the camera is quite a big change, actually. This notion that you can just relentlessly and constantly take photos of yourself all day, every day, and curate them all into kind of albums that you then show. I tried to explain to someone a younger woman just I wasn't trying to be judgmental or rude but I was just saying it's sort of the equivalent if I had gone into a school my school at 14 with a physical photo album of around 100 photos of me (laughs) and made everyone sit and look at them and rate each one out of 10 they'd honestly have thought I was mad and yet so quickly this is just perfectly normal when
1: when when young people ask for a selfie with me, even if I'm terribly wind or I have a horrible feeling my nose is running, I would generally stop and say yes. But they're the ones that suddenly whip out the hairbrush mm. and everything.
0: Now, I know that you collect books, I believe. You have 20,000. Is
1: that correct? <laughs> I, I, I moved about nearly three years ago. And I did have a little curl because it was getting ridiculous. But the books that I have, I I cherish and love. I'm a collector of books, so I have some lovely special books. But I I have heaps and heaps of paperbacks and and hardbacks of my favourite author's Novels and um, just—I don't think there's a room in the house that doesn't have books somewhere. Other and are De- they all alphabetized or they are. by author, oh, it does by sound title? Very anal. Doesn't no, it?
0: no, I like it. I'm picturing it now. It sounds like a sort of amazing fantasy. And you've brought as your next object a small selection of some of these very special books
1: along. I, I have. So what have we got there? And you see, I do actually don't feel so guilty about spending a fortune on books because I do sometimes use them for research, mm-hmm. and I wrote wrote a book set in the 20s called Dancing the Charleston and in one section they go to Harrods which in the 20s was an amazing amazing shop really world famous for the very best of everything and this is a a sort of catalogue of the things that they have there that it's more sort of late, late Edwardian than the 20s, but I argued that it's not going to change anything very much. So um, this
0: is a kind of it's a very beautiful cover, a kind of shimmering green cover with some embossed writing and indented and very elaborate. It says on the front, "The house that every woman knows." Is that Harrods?
1: <laughs> yes, oh, they're very oh, full lovely. of themselves. Yeah. I think this this particular copy was sent to some ladies somewhere or other. Uh-huh. I mean, they were very very good at marketing, and yes. it's fascinating to see like on the 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 dresses floor um you actually had real models wandering around oh, modeling really? the dresses Gosh. and um and there's sort of descriptions i've got another much heavier book at home which goes into every single kind of chocolate they have in the food hall and, and it's just wonderful i love details there's like a page
0: that. here called the lace and ribbon department detailing that uh, and nice pictures of the silk
1: and silk robe department yes <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I mean it gives you such such an idea of what a different way of life it was. So beautiful. Thank you. And I've got a map here of the um, big Wembley exhibition that took place in 1924 and 25. Mm -hmm. And I could open it up on the floor, kneel over it, and then plot where exactly my main character in the book will go when she's taken there. Mm I mean, it even says interesting things like admission one and six and children a shilling. So that, you know, I feel... Nobody really cares but me, but my facts are right. Yes, yeah. And and this particular book, which is called Dean's New Dress Book, and it's called Rose Merton, The Little Orphan. Now, who could resist a title like that? <laughs> but this is a novelty book where Little Rose, there are sort of hand-coloured pictures. Beautiful. Hand-coloured probably by a child. Mm-hmm. So it's a sort of double thing. Rich little girls would be reading this book Poor little girls would be using the watercolor to to make the pictures attractive. Yes, but she's got real bits of material for her sort of crinoline Gosh, yes. skirts wow. all the way through, which um, you know fascinates me to think of all the small children that have just gently touched all Amazing. these things. It's given me another idea that I've made copious notes on for the book after that. So I'm forever sort of yes. churning things around in my mind. They're
0: incredibly beautiful, and it's interesting you say about the. A little orphan and who could resist and all of this sort of thing. I did read once um, children do seem to need or are attracted by tragedy and difficulty in other children's lives. They like reading accounts of a bit of bullying or a yes. bit of hardship. People being tearful and lonely and a bit bullied sometimes you kind of prick your ears up a bit. and,
1: Quite. and Psychologically,
0: you... what do you think that is all about?
1: I think it's partly if you're going through a sad time yourself you you don't feel so oh gosh, why is a uh, but why don't people like me? Why are mm. they picking on me? And then you realise that it's probably some silly circumstance, or or just somebody being particularly spiteful, or whatever. So it's comforting. I was never that interested in books where children went adventuring to exotic places, or even did time travelling. But anything that where a child was going through a bad time, I, I would always identify with. You've mentioned
0: um, your Victorian book and Hetty Feather is about a child in the 1800s. Um, I think you've said you're interested in writing more historical books because is it right to say that you're, and you've alluded to this earlier, struggling with this kind of new sense of what it is to
1: be a teenager now? I have just finished this book nearly 14 where I thought, let's confront this. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but I do have my, my main character, accidentally drop her iPhone in a puddle at the start.
0: <laughs> she That's does, modern life dealt with.
1: Yeah. <laughs> she does eventually get one. But for reasons of the plot, you see, so much is taken away when you have an actual... Mobile phone about you, even sort of some of the most up to
0: the minute modern dramas on TV are going to find try to find a way almost immediately to remove everybody's mobile phone. Yes, because, as you say, it's just the, you know, suddenly they don't have reception or it's broken or yes. it's fallen down a ravine or just something. You've just got to get these things yes, out of the way because they get in the way of a story. Yes. And that sense of like being a bit lost for a bit, which is a big part of any story. Yes,
1: yes. I do think it's somehow easier to get to grips with what a girl in Victorian times might feel like because actually none of us know <laughs> we, we can read as many wonderful Victorian books as, as we can but it's not the same as actually experiencing it and I like that sort of product of my imagination whereas I've got to be really careful now I am in my 70s I don't want in my books to be doing the equivalent of dad dancing mm-hmm. and that people say oh god you know hark at the poor old soul sort of things god it's so wrong mm-hmm. so um i i if if there's a character in my head that isn't utterly um, obsessed with being cool and popular, then I, I feel I can still write about people like that. And I get heaps of letters and emails. I never write about people's personal circumstances, but I get the feeling I know what they're going through. For the most part, it, it's nice to be able to retreat back into the past, yes. <laughs> as well as living in the present day. Um, in terms of the actual writing, I mean,
0: people who listen to this, and I am too, always fascinated to hear from very successful writers about your actual process, as well as your um sort of creativity do you have a very strict word count per day or do do you have to start bang on some people start the moment they get up and they don't eat or drink anything for two hours all of that sort of thing what what is it mine
1: is a sort of combination of all of that i generally wake up about seven ish half seven I might go as far as having a cup of coffee, but then I get back into bed in pyjamas and then I write on my laptop and I'm kind to myself now. I am really pleased with myself if I manage a thousand words and I will work on those words later during the day and do all the many, many different You know, could you just write a little piece for such and such, or do this quote for charity, or answer all the emails and everything? So I'm actually writing all during the day, but the actual work on each children's book is that lovely time in the morning and. Then it's time for breakfast and um, maybe a swim, and um, then I can get on with the rest of the day.
0: So, you need to get those words done first yes, thing. Yes, I
1: feel okay. That, that's, I've done my work. Yes, yes.
0: Um, and you mentioned swimming, and your next object. Is swimming goggles.
1: Yes, I'm uh, looking at them now. They are actually, um, they're my old goggles. They are absolutely, I couldn't see a thing through. They <laughs> were scratched. But um, I do love to swim. It's the only thing I can do that's remotely sporty. Mm-hmm. But I love to swim. Now I live in the country and my I don't live a, a really crazy luxurious lifestyle. I'm very down to earth. I don't drive and I don't care if somebody's driving me and what it is. Um, I don't even buy that many clothes now, but I do have a small outdoor pool mm-hmm. that you know, costs a fortune to heat up. But it's my idea of bliss yes. to go from pyjamas to swimming costume. Don't quite dare at that time to swim naked just in case a delivery man
0: A delivery man is always hovering in these days, (laughs) I find. You can never quite be alone. Exactly. (laughs) But
1: it's just a joy and it sort of eases out all the aches and pains. And I do think as you sort of go up and down, up and down, it's a wonderful way of getting the thoughts flowing and some bit of the plot that has got all knotted up. Often it will unwind. So I find it extremely useful.
0: Mm. Um, well, I think your swimming pool should be a sort of obviously a legitimate business expense. <laughs> it's obviously a huge part of your creative process. <laughs> <laughs> um But yes, I mean, as you say, sort of when you have a problem with the plot or just something that's niggling you or doesn't want to go how you want it to go, and just stopping doing anything on it that's that's something people have to really learn to do from experience i think is to walk it, some people will just sit at the desk for hours punishing themselves
1: yes, and i i couldn't do that i mean it would be so boring and and just i i feel so many writers say that they work office hours 9 to 5 and you think absolutely truthfully you are really working on your novel all mm. day long <laughs> um I, I certainly don't. And I mean, if I'm working really intensely on something, two hours is my limit, then I've got to have a little break. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's surprising. So many people tell me I'd really love to write, but I just don't have the time. But you can within an hour or even half an hour, if you wrote productively every day for half an hour, you'd have a full length book by the end of the year. So
0: I think what people sometimes mean or don't quite realise they mean is that I don't have the time to write brilliantly immediately like you you do have the time to get some words down yes. as long as you're not judging the words you're getting down exactly and another big part of your creative life and your work has been with um, your illustrator yes um, nick sharratt um, who's been involved since the early since 90s the story
1: of tracy beaker which is very nearly thirty years. Yes, long time.
0: And so, how does how does he um, fit into the creative process of creating a new book?
1: Well, we're friends, and um, we meet every so often, which helps because so many writers barely ever meet the, the illustrator. I love his work. I'm a huge fan of Nick's, and I'm very well aware that his brilliant, colourful covers and wonderful, very. Um, Sophisticated drawings. They look so simple, but they are not. There's a lot of all. energy in them, isn't it? Totally. There. And just with one eyebrow or one t- tiny little downturned mouth, he can express so much. Mm. Um, he will always know vaguely what era I'm writing about or what sort of book. And I know what will appeal to him. And, um, and I try not to have too many girls with plats in because he, he does plats beautifully, <laughs> but he finds them at trial. Um, and, and then I will send him a first draft. I, to anybody else, even my editors, I don't like to do that. I like to gussy it up quite a bit. But with Nick, I know he's very busy. He does his own work, other authors Illustrations. He needs to know what he's got to do. And he's that rare thing an illustrator that will read the book several times before he even starts. Mm. And then he'll be full of creative ideas himself. And I just couldn't imagine anybody else illustrating my books.
0: I mean, it is a very distinctive style. It is very associated with your work and particularly with Tracy Beaker. And one of the funny little touches, like in We Are the Beaker Girls, there's a description where they all go to the pub and have a different meal for a celebration of something great that's happened. And he's just done a little drawing of each plate of food. (laughs) I just found that really satisfying
1: to look at. And I think, I mean, Nick hasn't any children himself and yet knows exactly the details that children will like. Mm. And nearly all children like food. Mm. I mean, somebody did say to me that food in children's books is the equivalent to sex in adult books. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a lot of food in my children's
0: books. Easier to describe food and not come off sounding a little bit cringy, though. So (laughs) that's good. Um, And... I know we were talking about swimming, uh, but also travel can be a big source of inspiration. I think, you know, lots of people love just staring out the window of a train and that relaxing sense of being in motion, but you're not propelling yourself. Um, And I think you're fond of trains as well. And your last object is a train timetable.
1: Exactly. I mean, I do need the train timetable. It takes me an hour and a half to get up to London from where I live. Um, However, actually, the timetable's rather misleading because the trains, <laughs> the, the train drivers, have a different idea altogether. Yeah, the trains but, just
0: run on their own timetable. Yes, they, they, do. they make a
1: sort of nominal printout <laughs> and then you can just sort of take your chances. I like train journeys. I do find it so productive. I can actually write, I can write in a notebook. Coming back from whatever I've been doing, particularly if it's an event talking to lots of people and maybe if it's not too big actually signing books, I am knackered. So basically I will stare out the window and yet I find in that half sleepy state of mind, suddenly a new idea will come to me. You can't make it come when I'm thinking about, oh, what's for tea? And oh, can't wait to have a glass of wine and relax. Mm. Um, then that idea will come in and um and I'll scribble it down just to make sure that I don't forget it. Sometimes, you know, in a couple of days' time you look at it and you think, oh, for goodness sake, how stupid. No, that will never work. Sometimes you think, Ah, yeah, Mm. maybe that's got something in it.
0: I think a lot of writers like trains. I think it's quite common. And in fact, I did a literary festival a couple of months ago and on the train back, it was a Sunday train and almost all the writers were on it and they were offering a £10 weekend upgrade. Um, And so I think everyone had had their standard tickets bought by the publisher and just thought, (laughs) I'm going to stump up a tenner uh, and sit in the first class. It was about a two, three hour journey back to London. There was just enough room for all the writers to have a set of two seats on their own and you could just see like slotted in by the window literally just don't look at me, don't talk to me I don't want to talk to anyone all in these funny little writer cubicles all the way up to London
1: (laughs) A bit competitive too Mm, even if you're just (laughs) writing ABCs Mm. I am really busy Yes, exactly, yes
0: or just staring out the window (laughs) defiantly thinking I can't talk to another person for another three weeks
1: Thinking about train journeys there are several in my book and I've even, in in a historical book called Rose Rivers, which is set partly in Dundee, tackled the, the Tay Bridge <laughs> disaster, which um, when I lived in Dundee as a teenager, it, it always haunted me. Uh, I, I was in Dundee because I worked for DC Thompson's and that's how I, I started my whole writing career at 17. Mm. And I worked on various women's magazines and also contributed to Jackie magazine, which was an incredible magazine in itself because many, many girls read it right across the class system. It was an amazing Sign of the times. Um,
0: I believe you were an only child yourself, and you write and you write about only children quite frequently. And were you quite fascinated as well in those early years of working on things like Jackie, and and then your later life of reaching out to other children or finding out what other children get up to in their own private time? Do you think I
1: am actually fascinated with sibling relationships, Mm. um, and particularly twins, because you know, the dynamics of the relationship would be quite hard to deal with.
0: Uh, Jess Beaker, uh, Tracy Beaker's daughter, is an only child. And we also encounter another um, child called Jordan in We Are the Beaker Girls, who is having a really difficult time. And Jess reaches out to her as well. And they sort of perhaps cultivate a sense of a future sibling relationship. It's a really fascinating character, Jordan. and she's And some quite tough stuff she's dealing with. You know, she's destitute. She's lonely. She's hungry. She's angry. It was quite a sort of like, oh, hello, sort of moment in the book where she turns up, actually.
1: I think you can deal with a really troubled young person from another child's perspective. And I, I found that quite interesting to do. And then, of course no matter what happens with with Jess and Jordan Tracy looks as she's having a whole new relationship at the end of that book if there's ever a sequel who knows there might actually be another little beaker yes
0: it feels like it's heading that way <laughs> a baby beaker how about that
1: yeah.
0: well we've got a clip from the audiobook where Jordan comes into the story. Uh, Jordan is a runaway girl who um, is having a really tough time and Jess, Tracy's daughter, has reached out to her. Um, And Jordan explains some of her story
2: to Jess. So let's have a listen to that now. So they excluded me from school without even listening to my side. And my foster mum burst into tears. And my foster dad told me off. And they wouldn't hear my side either. So I acted up a bit. And they said they couldn't cope. They called my social worker and told these downright lies, saying it was clear I wasn't happy with them, when they were the ones who weren't happy with me. So is someone else fostered you now? I asked. Nope. That's the whole point. No one wants me now. Even though they get more cash, because I'm hard to place. My old children's home was closed down, so now they want to send me all the way up to Manchester. I don't know anyone, and I'm not having it. So I walked out, and I didn't go back. You walked out just like that? Yeah. I was so stupid, really, because I didn't grab any of my stuff, not even my phone, and I was wearing my oldest clothes because I was just mooching around the house. And I didn't take any cash. I wish I'd snatched my foster mum's purse. That would have paid it back for not wanting me, said Jordan. She was trying to sound big and tough, but her voice had gone wobbly and I could see she had tears in her eyes. I wondered about putting my arm round her, but I thought she'd probably just push me away.
0: That was We Are The Beaker Girls by my guest Jacqueline Wilson, read there by the wonderful Sheridan Smith. And just a reminder to subscribe to The Penguin Podcast so you don't miss new free episodes twice a month and can hear audio extracts from new books free. You can find us at sites like Apple Podcasts or Spotify via a podcast app or on your Alexa-enabled device. That extract, I mean, even as an adult listening to it and reading it, um, it you do feel, really feel for this girl, Jordan, when she
1: finally... Jordan makes it sound very fierce. I know. <laughs> <laughs> she... <laughs> yeah, well, but it is that she moment is as right. well where yeah. she's... And, I mean, I have met many girls like that. There's a particular... There's a In, in Brighton, there's a, a sort of group run by some some women who take troubled girls very similar to Jordan and they have a kind of club and they do things and they put on dramas and everything and um you know they were that could have been one of those girls and they're they're very tough they're very cynical and yet suddenly in the midst of a great rant they say, Can I have a hug? Mm. And and they're still kids. Yes. But they you know, they, they sound scary, they can look scary. But there's they're... an
0: aggression yes. that is just yes. sort of masking very yes. frightened little children actually. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. And you never quite know the full horror of what's no, really gone no, on
1: it's it's hard
0: and you talk a lot about the fostering network at the end of the book and that there are 65,000 young people living with foster families in the UK and it it is a huge number but it's still it's still quite a hidden world in many respects and the sort of thing that Perhaps we just want to look at out of the corner of our eye. Are you very consciously wanting to bring that to the front and, and get people to say, please just don't ignore this all the time?
1: Absolutely. I mean, yesterday I was at a wonderful ceremony because um, I'm a patron of the East Sussex Foster Care Association and they just won the, the special Queen's Award for Voluntary Services and to see some of the foster carers who have made such a difference to these children and to see I was sitting at a table with four or maybe five young women, um, all of whom have, you know, done well, smart, well, well-mannered, lovely, lovely girls. And yet all of them, had to be taken into care when they were very young and you know their lives have literally been changed round and
0: if you want to know more if any listeners would like to know more there is a website at the fosteringnetwork.org.uk thank you so much for talking to us it's such a wide-ranging completely fascinating conversation um you mentioned i think that you try to write two books a year if yes. not more <laughs> so what's next have you what is the the next one must be lined up already
1: well the next one next april will be called Nearly 14 Mm -hmm. about falling in love for the first time. And then I rather think that the one after that will be a mid-Victorian one, maybe for slightly younger children. Maybe I'm aiming at the now six to ten age group. And a shorter one, because I, my book seem to be getting longer and longer. <laughs> There's a lot shorter. to say.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Jacqueline Wilson, thank you so much for joining us today on the Penguin Podcast. Thank you very much, too. Pre-order now from Penguin Random House Audio: Book 14 of the Diary of a Wimpy Kid series from the number one international best-selling author, Jeff Kinney. An unexpected inheritance gives the Hefley family the opportunity to create their dream home. But soon, they will find construction isn't all it's cracked up to be. Monday. During dinner tonight, Mom said we needed to have a family meeting, and family meetings are never much fun. Mom told us Aunt Reba had lived a really humble life in a small apartment, but that she had been careful with her money and made some really smart investments. Well, I had no idea why Mom was telling us all this. But then came the big news. Mom said that Aunt Reba had left all her money to her family, and it took me a second to realize that included us. Apparently, when you find out about this sort of news, you're not supposed to act happy about it because I guess that's disrespectful
2: to the person who passed away. But nobody told us kids that. We jumped up on our chairs and screamed and hooted and hollered, Yay! Hooray!
0: woo Narrated by the fantastic Dan Russell, Diary of a Wimpy Kid, Wrecking Ball, is available to pre-order from Audible and Apple now.